please open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. You'll find the notes for this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. We are beginning the second portion of chapter 2. Chapter 2 is two um, contrasts. We finished our first contrast over three weeks. I think it'll take us three weeks to finish our second contrast that makes up all of chapter 2. And while you turn there, I'll remind you of where this sits in the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians is six chapters long. The first three chapters primarily composed of instruction and prayers about what is and what has been done, doctrine, information, teaching is given primarily. And in the second half of the book, chapters four, five, and six, the, the instruct, the imperatives, the commands, the so what, you could think of chapters one to three as orthodoxy and chapters four to six as orthopraxy or as, as indicative verbs and imperative verbs or as instruction and exhortation, however you want to divide it up. We are in the middle of that section of instruction. Chapter one, if you remember, began with a greeting in the first two verses and then two big long sentences. Uh, verses three to 14 is a, a big benediction, praising God extolling God, speaking well of God for all that God has done for us. And we saw as we looked through those verses in a number of weeks how the triune God, every member of the Trinity, has been at work through all of time and space, eternity past with a view to eternity future in saving us and blessing us and choosing us and making us sons and giving us an inheritance. And then chapter 1 ends with a prayer of Paul on the Ephesian church's behalf. And he's thankful for them. And he begins this practice of thanking God in their hearing. But then he lets them know what it is exactly he's praying for them. Because he is praying for them a lot. And even as they appear to be a healthy, growing, vibrant church, it doesn't stop Paul from being on his knees regularly for them. He's not just praying for problems. He's, he's praying for healthy, growing believers. And his prayer... Um, is for three things, that they would know, that they'd understand supernaturally what is the hope of their calling, what is the glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power directed towards them. That's how chapter 1 ends. And that last what, that power notion, is what Paul then develops. And he makes it clear that the, the power that he wants us to understand that's at work on our behalf and has already been at work for us is the same power at work in raising the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. The same power that raised him above all earthly powers and seated him at the right hand of God. The same power that subjugated all lesser powers beneath him. That is the power that's at work in us. And then he begins the first of the two contrasts, and that's in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And that first contrast is individual. And that first contrast deals with vertical issues, our relationship with God. And we saw that we were dead, and we were slaves to our passions, and that we were destined for wrath. And that was the problem. And so as you look at our second section, verses 11 to 22, you're going to notice some similarities with the first contrast. The, the contrast, the two different contrasts, verses 1 to 10, verses 11 to 22, have striking similarities and dissimilarities. The, what's similar about them is they both follow the same pattern. The problem is laid out. And then you get this wonderful, in verse 4, but God and in our second contrast, today's contrast, you get verse 13. But now, 
and you get the, the change. Here's the problem. That's the setup. Here's what God has to fix, or here's the dilemma we are in that God's going to do something about. Then you're, but now here's what God did, and then ends with application. So what? So last week, we saw that for those who have been raised from the dead, who've been regenerated, who've been brought to life with Christ, are also those whom God has raised above the authority and the, the mastery of this world and its powers, he has freed us from slavery, are also those who will rule with Christ. And then more specifically, we saw last week, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And now we start to get to that, some of that, so What? And one of the things I've been trying to emphasize to you, and I will continue to emphasize to you, is part of what Paul wants us to understand is there's so much more going on. There's so much more involved in your salvation. My salvation is so much greater than we have hitherto thought. If you just think salvation is, I don't go to hell because my sins are forgiven, I'm going to heaven. Salvation is not less than that, but oh, it is so much more than that. That is true. That is glorious. That is wonderful. And there's more. And one of the things that we saw that was more is not only has Christ made us who are dead alive, not only has he freed us from the power and the tyranny of this world and our flesh and our desires, not only has he destined us not for wrath but for rule with him, but he's made us anew in him and he's made us anew for good works to walk in. Our very dead walk, which was the problem Laid out at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Then he goes on to describe that walk. It was a walk that was following our passions, following the flesh, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. We were slaves. We were walking a certain way. We weren't free in our walk. He's got a new walk for us. And I ended last week by pointing out that this new walk, this walk of good works, is what he has fashioned us into. Walkers of good works. And that's really setting up his outline for the second half of the book. All of the so what's and how to live in light of it is walk this way and walk in light and walk in love and don't walk as the Gentiles. And so I closed last week by trying to make the point that these things are a unit. This is the salvation of which he speaks. And we're saved in verse 8 by grace. You've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. We want to make sure we get the works on the right side of the equation. Good works do not lead to, contribute to, make salvation. They absolutely don't. And elsewhere, Paul will write, if you get that mixed up, you probably aren't a Christian. If you're adding things to faith... I'm trusting my faith in my good works. I'm trusting my faith in my church attendance. I'm trusting my faith in my baptism. Paul, or my circumcision in Galatians. To those who trust in faith and their circumcision, Paul says you're a curse cut off from Christ. You don't want to get the works on the wrong side of the equation. But you also don't want to be so zealous in getting them on the wrong side of the equation that you just cut them off altogether, which is, I think, potentially our temptation. Well, because confusion on the means of salvation is so detrimental, so critical, wouldn't it be safer still if we just stop talking about good works or make that sort of a second level, you got saved, now you're becoming a disciple. And Paul speaks of both in, in, in one sentence. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. 
so that no one may boast. We're not saved from out of works. We're not saved because of works. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved from out of or because of works, but we're saved into and for good works. And Paul's well aware he just said the one, now he's just said the other. And we need to be able to do both comfortably as well. You have not been saved because of your good works. You've been saved for good works. And it's a package that's part of that salvation. And so one of the implications to bear in mind is if we're naming ourselves as Christians and believers, if we're saying, I've been forgiven, you're also saying, I've been chosen. You're also saying, I've been adopted. You're also saying, I have an inheritance. You're also saying, I've been made alive. You're also saying, I've been raised with Christ. And you're also saying, I've been fashioned anew in Christ for good works which God prepared for me. Now, out of all of those wonderful realities that I just mentioned, what's the most verifiable What's the most? How do you verify that you've been made alive? How do you verify that you've been raised? I think probably the most verifiable is that last one. And so if we're not indicating that we are made anew in Christ for good works, it certainly raises the question, if that doesn't appear to be true, is the rest of those realities true? Because make no mistake, Paul puts them as a package deal. A package deal. Those he foreknew... He chose those he chose, he called those he called, he justified those he justified, he glorified. It's a package deal. Salvation is large and rich. And so that was this so what he ends his first contrast with. Now we're entering to the second. Let's read it and then begin looking through it. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. So remember, be looking for the problem, the solution, and the so what. That's going to be the same format Paul's going to use here. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built and the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for the Spirit, for a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now let's pray. Lord God, as we begin to look at this rich passage, I pray that by your Spirit you would give us power to understand, power to know that you would enable us to see the riches you've given us, that you may give 
the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowing you, and that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened, that we might know what is the inheritance among the saints, what is the hope of our calling, and what is the immeasurable power at work towards us. Lord God, this is rich material, rich words. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And help us to take these truths to heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I told you what the first contrast and the second contrast have in common, which is they both follow the same pattern, problem, solution, implication. That's also how we looked at it over three weeks, how we'll look at it over three weeks this time. We're going to primarily focus on the problem this week. Next week, what did God do about that problem? And then, so what? It has that in common. There's this before and after motif. Before, you were this. Now, you were this. There's also that both of them are broken up by these wonderful but gods or but now. It's divine initiative and divine activity that solves the problem. There's not but you did something, but God did something. There's another commonality which doesn't show up as clearly in English, but I was struck by this as I was translating through this in Greek. Paul takes words, and what is expressed in your English Bible, sometimes by three or four words, can be one word in Greek. And he'll take a, a preposition, which means together with, and he'll bolt it onto some words. And we saw that in the first problem. The solution was three of those together with. So look in verse 5. What did God do to solve our deadness, our slavery, and our destiny for wrath? He made us alive together with. That's one Greek word, made to be made alive together with. Verse 6, he raised us up with, and he seated us with. So we are made alive together with, we are raised up together with, and we were seated together with him. Well, the same thing happens as the solution in our second section. Look at verse 19. Again, one word in Greek, you are citizens together with. That's my rough attempt to translate. Verse 21, joined together with. And 22, built together with. But now let's talk about some of the contrasts between these two um, before and afters. The first before and after is individual. You were a child of wrath. The first contrast dealt with your individual plight or what is universal for all men without distinction. In fact, Paul comes to that conclusion at the end saying, we were, look at verse 3, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The problems of verses 1 to 3 are universal. They're true of every human being who has ever lived except the Lord Jesus Christ. No distinction. And he deals with it at an individual level. They're also vertical. These are primarily problems with God. We're children of wrath. We're sons of disobedience. We're spiritually dead. We're not alive to him. We're dead. And we're slaves, not to him, but to our flesh in this world and the God of this world. And we're in relationship to him. We're children of wrath. Well, in our second contrast, we see that rather than dealing with an individual problem, we're dealing with a corporate problem. And it's not a universal corporate problem. You Gentiles in the flesh. So it's a group of people, and the group of people is not everyone. I think it's probably most of us in this room, but it's certainly not most of Paul's first audience. If it's most, it's not everyone. This is, a, this is a group, it's not an individual, and it's not a group that comprises everyone. It's just a group that comprises of a lot of people. 
So that's, that's a difference. Corporate issues here. Issues of specific problems to being a Gentile are being addressed here. Not universal human problems. Gentile problems. Um, another difference is where Paul looks to to see the solution. So the solution to our first set of problems in the first contrast were seen in Christ's being made alive in his resurrection, we are made alive. In Christ's ascension, as he ascends, we have been raised. And in Christ's enthronement, as, as he has been seated at the right hand of the Father, so we have been seated. So in other words, Paul sees the solution to our problems in the first three verses in Christ's resurrection, in his ascension, and in his enthronement. Paul finds the solution to our second set of problems in his death, not in his resurrection. I mean, it's a package deal in a sense, but in contrast to where he's looking, look at where he looks in our text. Verse 13, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's talking about the death on the cross. He makes that explicit in verse 16. Might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. It's Jesus' bloody death. It's Jesus' broken flesh. It's Jesus' cross. That is the answer to this set of problems. Now, of course, his death and resurrection is, is a package, but, but Paul is zeroing in in the first set of problems with the resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. Here, he's looking at the death of Christ. But the third and most striking difference is this. That together with words and language of the first set of problems, speak primarily of our union with Christ. We are raised with him. We are made alive with him. We are seated with him. The together words of our second section don't speak primarily of our union with him, but primarily of our union with each other. Look, look at verse 19. Fellow citizens with. He's talking primarily about Jew and Gentile, our fellow citizens with. 21. Being joined together with. Again, Jew and Gentile. Verse 22, being built together with into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So even as he uses the same types of words, emphasizing union, here it's primarily horizontal issues that are being discovered and considered. Oh yes, he will certainly deal with vertical issues. But in contrast to the first, which is exclusively your and my problems with ourselves and with God, he is now largely considering horizontal social problems. So we're dealing with the corporate issues. We're dealing with horizontal conflict issues. And this is incredibly relevant for our day. We live in a day where tribalism is rampant. Tribalism is absolutely rampant. Whether your tribe is, is the Black Lives Matter, the Blue Lives Matter, the American Lives Matter, the Iranian Lives Matter, the Syrian Lives Matter, North America, whatever tribe, and you can break it down bigger or smaller, Whatever your tribe, tribalism is alive and well and destructive in our society today. As people find their commonality and their identity in tribalism. There's a real tribalism that God instituted. Now, he, he initially instituted uh, the division of peoples at Babel. But even more so, we're going to look at a real issue of tribalism here, a real issue, really, speaking of tribes, the tribe of Israel, the tribe of Judah and Gentiles. We're dealing with real racial hostility, real racial issues. I mean, there's plenty of tribalism we just invented 
You go to the caste system in India, the different tribes there, or the, the Hutsi and the, Hutu, the Tutsi and the Hutu, just completely arbitrarily invented by man, or, or north and south, or whatever. There's plenty of tribalism we just made up. But here Paul is dealing with what I think is probably the most significant tribal divide, and it's a problem, and it's a real problem. And the good news is, In the cross of Christ, there is a solution. And if there's a solution to the biggest tribal divide, if there's a solution, a real solution in Christ's cross to the biggest ethnic um, hostility, then surely all the lesser hostilities can be solved in Christ's cross as well. And it's incredibly relevant for us, I think, today in understanding how in the church and in Christ these things, Jesus is able to take a zealot, a a terrorist against the Roman occupation, and a tax collector, an Uncle Tom, a a sellout, and make them part of his disciples together in one group. He's able to incorporate Samaritans into his people and, and Romans into his people, people who would have been ethnically, nationally, in every sense, hostile and at odds with each other. He makes peace with them. And if Christ can do that in his body, he can do that today in our country and in our world. That's that's the practical so what. So these are problems we probably haven't much considered. But I'd like to begin now diving in, then and now, near and far. We'll see how far we get. That was, I think, somewhat of a long introduction. But I think it's helpful to understand the... uh, It wasn't that funny. Um, Because I think that that is a... A crucial issue, these, these two contrasts. And the second one, these are problems we don't generally consider. So the, the, we're going to look at verses 1 to 3 this morning. And the way to just divide them is remember your former condition. That word remember shows up twice, verse 11. Therefore remember, verse 12, remember. And in contrast to that, starting in verse 13, is the but now. And so we're going to deal primarily this morning with the problem. Laying out the problem. Understanding and appreciating the problem. It's not problems we generally Consider, in our culture, we are so used to individualism as an American ideal that we don't generally think in bigger corporate categories. And so the first contrast where you had a problem and you were a slave and you were dead, but he made you alive, we get that. That resonates with us. I mean, who here is often considered, man, we Gentiles were in an awful plight. I so am glad that God solved the problem of me being a Gentile. I had some serious problems. That's exactly where he's going. So remember your former condition. Now he connects this back to what's just been said. The connection, therefore, whenever you see a therefore, let's look and see what it's there for. And I believe it's everything he's written in the, previously in the letter, specifically focusing on the first 10 verses. He's building upon that individualistic idea. Peoples are made up of individuals. So you, individual, who's been made alive, raised, seated, fashioned anew in Christ for good works, you, individual... Now he's going to talk to you individuals who are Gentiles. He's going to talk to you as a group. Like I said, I think he's talking to nearly all of us. Um, Therefore, everything that has just been said, he's building upon that. And he he calls them Gentiles in the flesh. Now, this is a Jewish designation. A Gentile doesn't consider themselves a Gentile. They consider themselves a Roman or Phoenician or an Assyrian or whatever. They don't, this is a Jewish designation. Paul speaking to Gentiles as a Jew here. He's, he's given them the name a Jew would call them, Gentiles. And of course, in the Jewish distinction of the world, there's simply the Jews and the Goyim, everyone else. Panta ta ethne, the peoples. It's Jews and the nations. 
Jews and Gentiles. That's the Jewish division. It's stark and it's clear. Therefore, remember at that time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And now, before he goes on to elaborate the real problems, I think he wants to separate himself from some of the current and some of the sinful division going on between Jews and Gentiles. We know from reading the Gospels, for example, that the Jews, even as they ought to rightly understand the distinction between Jew and Gentile, went further and sneered and looked down upon and mocked the Gentiles. We are not Gentile sinners like them. And, and Paul does not mean to bring that to this discussion. So he just, he's, he's not simply echoing, as a Jew, the ethnic taunts, the ethnic superiority of Jews. He, Paul doesn't hold the Jews of his day, the unbelieving Jews, in, in terribly high estimation. And so he makes it clear, he'll call them Gentiles in the flesh, but they're also called by the Jews the uncircumcision. The uncircumcision. You Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Here's your blank. We're dealing with real racial conflict. Racial conflict. Um, the Jews took great pride in their circumcision. Um, Circumcision is instituted by God. If you turn in your Bible to Genesis um, 17. Because the point I was making earlier is even whereas the Jews of Paul's day go too far, become too superior, make the divide greater than it ought to be, make the divide um, a cause for pride and self-righteousness, it is a real divide. And it's a divinely instituted divide. God authored this divide. And in Genesis 17, we read, in verse 1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you, may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring all the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, out of their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He was eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now you read that, and you may be tempted to think, okay, the entire covenant is simply a works-based thing. It's not. Elsewhere in Romans 4, turn back to, to, to Genesis um, 12, or yeah, turn back to 12. Paul makes the point that 
Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 are written and appear earlier in the chronology than Genesis 17. Here, the sign of Abraham's covenant and his covenant condition that he keeps in his covenant is, is the sign of circumcision, but it's built upon the free promises of God. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make to you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, there's no conditions that Abraham has to keep here. God's just promising him things. Then turn to 15. Paul makes a big deal of this in Romans 4 and Galatians. Genesis 15, verse 5 and 6. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So this has already happened. Abraham, without any conditions to keep, without any signs to observe, has believed the Lord, what he said. He is counted righteous. So when God gives this condition of of circumcision to Abraham. He is a justified man. He is a forgiven man. So don't make that mistake. But make also don't make the mistake of thinking circumcision is some small thing. The Lord's equally clear. Look, anyone in your, in your household, anyone in your nation, any of your people who don't have this sign, they're cut off, removed from the people. And so here you get the basis then for real tribalism. There's a people who have circumcision, there's a people who don't. There's a people who are cut off, there's a people who are not cut off. So, Paul then turns his attention in identifying this racial conflict, because he calls them Gentiles in the flesh, but then he renames them what they're likely called by Jews of his day. Uncircumcised Gentiles. That's how David identifies the Philistines and Goliath. Who, who are these uncircumcised Philistines? Who are they? And there's a right way to view that. We know the Jews of Jesus' day, many of them did not view it rightly. By what is called the circumcision. But then Paul adds these qualifiers in. He's not simply touting the the nationalistic racial line of his contemporaries. He calls them the circumcision made in the flesh, which is to say a purely external circumcision. Uh, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. It's made in the flesh. It's an external circumcision. That's critical because the sign of circumcision, the outward sign, is meant to reflect an inward reality. Turn to to Deuteronomy 10. We will not turn to many Old Testament passages, but we'll turn here. When you turn to Deuteronomy 10, stay there, because we're going to jump to Deuteronomy 30 in just a second, and then our sojourn in the Old Testament will be mostly done. This is critical to get as well, because this is what the Jews of Jesus' day missed. Yes, external circumcision was a matter of obedience. Yes, it was a matter of, of, of being within the people or cut off from the people. But it was never the thing itself. Look at Deuteronomy 10, um, verse 15 and 16. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers, and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your hearts. And be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fathers and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So the demand is for an inward 
circumcision, even as the outward circumcision signifies it. And then Paul goes on, and now turn to Deuteronomy 30, when Paul goes on to add not only made with hands, made in the flesh, but also made with hands, your blank, your second blank, your first blank is it's external only. Second, it's not made by God. It's made by human hands. The Jews of Paul's day are externally circumcised, and they're circumcised by men, because God's demand in Deuteronomy chapter 10 is, is only finally answered in Deuteronomy 30. Even as he commands you, he commands me to circumcise our hearts. We can't do that. He has to do it for us. Deuteronomy 30. I'll pick it up in verse 1. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God and your, with your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes, have mercy on you. He will gather you again from the people so the Lord your God has scattered you. Pause. Moses is fully aware the Mosaic Covenant is going to fail. It's going to end in scattering. There's no confusion. He's not thinking this is going to get us all the way home. It's only going to govern us for a time. He understands you're going to fail to obey and God's going to drive you to the nations. And then after that, this... Um, verse 5, the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. He will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So I think Paul, in, in making these distinctions, he's, he's replicating he calls them Gentiles in the flesh, and he calls them what the Jews of his day would likely call them, uncircumcision. But then he wants to get some distance between himself and them as he references, well, they may be circumcised, but it's only outward. And it's only the result of man's work, not God's work. Just because they're circumcised outwardly by men does not mean God's made them alive, does not mean God's raised them, does not mean God's adopted them, does not mean God has seated them with Christ, given them an inheritance. But there is something there. There is something there. Okay? So that's, that's the, uh, the notion. So we go from the connection, everything, the reception, uncircumcision, real conflict, external only, made by hands, not made by God. Now we get to what it is he wants them actually to remember. And he wants them to remember five negative things, five plights, five problems they had. We see that there in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time, number one, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We're going to quickly try to get through these problems. These are the problems you and I have, particularly as Gentiles. These are, the, these are uniquely Gentile problems. And they're, they're real problems. And God has answered and solved these problems in the cross of Christ. And he wants us to be aware of that so that we might have greater joy, greater understanding of what's been done on our behalf. So let's take a look at our distinctly Gentile problems. First, we were without Christ. Without Christ. You were at that time separated from Christ. I'll make a, I'll make a relatively obvious statement here. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. Promised to the Jewish people. Born of Jewish parents dying in Israel. And, and these promises of a coming Messiah were given to Israel, 
In fact, this will be our last stop in the Old Testament. Turn to Psalm 2. Read Psalm 2, understanding where before the new covenant, you and I would stand in Psalm 2. I've read, I love Psalm 2. If you've been here for a while, you know I, I go to Psalm 2 frequently. It's this great messianic psalm that unites the sonship and the kingship and the messiahship of Jesus, and he is triumphant over the nations, but he's triumphant over the nations, which would be us. Prior to what we're about to read about how God has solved our problem, read Psalm 2, understanding where naturally you and I would fall with this Jew-Gentile distinction, with this circumcision division. Psalm 2, verse 1, why do the nations rage? The nations, the peoples, the goyim, the Gentiles. That's us. That would be the team we would naturally be on. That'd be our group. That'd be our tribe if Christ didn't do something about it. Yeah, read Psalm 2, understanding the problem we would have had. We're so used to, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Let's get behind that for a moment. Remember at that time, this is at that time, before Christ died, the new covenant was inaugurated, where would we be in Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage? That's us. And the people's plot in vain. Us again. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take their counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Anointed is the English for the Hebrew, Messiah, Messiah, which in Greek is Christos, Christ. Christ, Messiah, and anointed are Greek, Hebrew, and English for the same thing. Without Christ, right, because we're part of the nations that are warring against him. We're not the home team. We're the ones saying in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Mount Zion, my holy hill. The Lord God establishes his Messiah king in direct opposition to and in conflict with the nations, the Gentiles. Verse 7, I'll tell of your decree. The Lord said to me, you're my son that I've begotten. You ask of me and I will make... The nations, your heritage. And you might be tempted to think, oh, good, go good. He's going to give the nations to Jesus. The Christ, the ends of the earth, your possession. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That, again, is us. Now, there is a warning. There is, there's always been a hint. There's always been an invitation the nations, but here it is. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the sun, lest he be angry at you. But the whole notion is let all the nations and all the Gentiles and all the ethnicities fear and tremble at the Jewish Messiah King, do homage and fealty to him and surrender. Make no mistake in Psalm 2 where we would fall. We were without Christ prior to the new covenant and Jesus' death. We are on the other side of this divide. The Jewish Messiah was destined to defeat our earthly kingdoms and ethnicities and subjugate them under his rule. We were without Christ. Now, part of that is in, even on this earliest chapter 1, verse 3, all these blessings we have, they're in Christ. We were without Christ, now we're in Christ. Next, we were without a people. We were without a people. So we were without Christ. That was the first problem. The Jewish Messiah was going to destroy and defeat and smash the Gentiles and the nations. That was a problem. That's a big problem. Second, we were without a people. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. 
alienated from the commonwealth or the body politic of Israel. We're without a people. This gets back to that tribalism. Now, the Gentiles, and the Old Testament makes it clear, could become part of Israel and be made right with God. But what they couldn't do is stay Gentiles. So there's a process called proselyte conversion. We, we see some examples in the New Testament. The Ethiopian eunuch is an example. But what's he doing? He's, he's going three times to Jerusalem to keep the feast. He's certainly been circumcised. In other words, he's cast his lot with the Jewish people. So we have um, the, the Canaanite prostitute, Rahab, in the Messianic line, only after she commits treason on her national people group, turns from her tribe and casts her lot with the people of Israel. I mean, make no mistake, Rahab commits treason against the people of Jericho. She's righteous and right because she's joining herself with the people of God. But because of her actions, they, the walls fall. She let the spies in. She couldn't stay a Jerusalemite and be part of the people of God. And the same is true for Ruth. She doesn't remain a Moabitess. So yes, the Gentiles are welcome to come and become Israelites. They could not remain Gentiles and have a people. They could not remain Gentiles and have a Christ. They could not remain Gentiles and have salvation. Without a people. Next, without covenants and promises. Without covenants and promises. So they are without Christ, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. English says promises. Promises. It's many covenants, many promises. It's the idea. We've already heard in in Genesis some of the many promises God made to Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Or Genesis 15, 5 to 6, he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. And that's just the Abrahamic covenant. And that's the covenant God made with David. But a throne and a kingdom. This is the covenant God made with Phineas, for perpetual priesthood. There are many covenants, many promises, and they're given to Jews and people in Israel. And they're not given to the Gentiles. So they're outside of that. That's another big problem. As a Gentile, no Christ. As a Gentile, no true people. As a Gentile, no promises, no covenants. Yes, you could stop being a Gentile and come join with Israel. And by the second or third generation, your kids would be fully Israelites. You'd, of course, have to stay in the court of the Gentiles. You wouldn't be able to come all the way into the court of the men or the court of the women. But you could, you could come. This then leads to the next conclusion, without hope. Without hope. Now the irony here, of course, being plenty of people think they've got hope. Plenty of people think they're doing well. Plenty of people think they've got plenty to live for. We're again looking at it from the vantage point of truth. It's not that everyone you've ever met who's an unbeliever is hopeless in a self-acknowledged sense. It's the way you and I might watch footage of people boarding those planes on 9-11 
blithely unaware of what was about to befall them and say, those poor, hopeless people. We know what is in store for them. We know what's coming. And so we can say, we might watch people getting on the Titanic, those, those poor people, even as they're rich and opulent and drinking their champagne, we know what a terrible and poor condition they are in. So Paul identifies them as without hope. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why Christian counseling, pastoral counseling, is limited to believers. I, I can evangelize unbelievers, but we can't give them a hope that isn't Christ. They're without hope. And in one sense, all counseling is a giving of hope. Your marriage is bad. Your kids are bad. Your work situation is bad. You've got a bad issue with a friendship. I want to give you some hope. I want to help. And all my hope and all my blessings are found in Christ. In him are all these blessings. Like, i got this Savior for you, and he's awesome. I don't want your Christ, but I want help with my marriage. Then you're hopeless. You have no hope. Right? If you, I don't want your Messiah. I want 10 tips to succeed in the workplace. i got no hope for you. You've cut yourself off from hope. i got all this hope in Christ. i got all these blessings in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. But if there are every blessings in Christ and you don't want Christ, how many blessings are outside of him? Zero. So that, that's the state of unbelievers. Oh, they, they could, might be able to do better at the workplace, but they're not achieving any real value. Nothing good is really happening. Sometimes the best thing that could happen to a man is failure. Frequently, it's, it's in low points the Lord calls his children and not in their exaltation. So that's the true state of every Gentile. Not, not that every Israelite's reconciled, but Israel has a hope. And Israel has a Messiah. And Israel had covenants and promises. And if you were an Israelite, you had those too. You might be a covenant breaker. Doesn't mean every Israelite's going to heaven. But Israel's got a Messiah. They got a people. They've got covenants and promises. They've got a hope. And then finally, without God in the world. Without God. The Greek here is literally atheist. God, either godless or without God. ESV went with without God. And again, the Gentile world will say, what are you talking about? We've got all types of gods. Right? They're very religious. Paul can recognize this as he goes through uh, Athens, right? Mars Hill. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. Well, therefore, you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you. So the, the world around us, again, is very religious. They don't recognize themselves as atheists. But they're atheists. If you're, not, if you're not putting your faith in a Jewish Messiah, if you're not in Christ, in, in a very real sense, you are godless. You are an atheist. I'm going to read briefly an account of the martyrdom of an early church father, Polycarp, illustrating this point. Polycarp is an old man, disciple of John, the gospel writer. And this writing of his death takes, is written in about 150, 160 A.D., so Polycarp's an old man, and Rome is gathering up Christians and persecuting them, and they gather Polycarp up. Now, this is from the Apostolic Fathers, Eusebius writing, an early church historian. Now, as Polycarp was entering into the stadium, because they're going to try him in a stadium, there came a voice from heaven saying, Be strong, show yourself the man, O Polycarp. No one saw who it was that spoke to him, but those of our brethren who were present heard the voice. So this is what Eusebius has heard. Eusebius is not writing scripture. That just could be a legend. Let me keep going. Um, and as he was brought forward, the tumult became great. 
when they heard that Polycarp was taken. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. Upon confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Have respect to thy old age, and other similar things according to their custom. And what basically the proconsul realizes is Rome is not going to look mighty and strong by killing an old man. He has some pity for Polycarp. It's not going to make a good showing you know, for the, the animals to devour an old man. It, it, it looks better when you've got strong, powerful people, an old, wizened man. Just, just take care for your old age. Spare yourself some trouble. We'll let you off easy. Just, just deny Christ. And uh, according to their custom, saying, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheists. Because, of course, the Romans viewed the Christians as atheists because the Rome had this panoply of gods. They just, they'd conquer people. In would come five, six, seven, eight new gods. They'd rename them. My son's learning Greek mythology. And, you know, they'd just give them new names. But they just keep adding in the gods. And so they got hundreds, thousands of gods, and the Christians don't believe in any of them. They're the atheists. They don't believe in our gods. And it's a political issue because we, we believe our gods, the Romans would say, are, are, success, are the reason for our success at war and the reason for our success um, economically. And so if enough people disrespect the gods, we may lose at war. We may have a famine. So it's important that the Christians get on board and tip their hat. They can keep the god they like, that they gotta, they got to recognize Caesar's god. they got to not give offense to the other gods. It's starting to sound a little similar. You can believe what you like. You just got to affirm what everyone else believes too. So away with the atheists. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on the multitude of the wicked heathen in the stadium. Eusebius is letting his position slip here, I think. And waving his hand towards them with groans, looked up to heaven and said, and so get this, they, they cry away with the atheists. He looks at the entire stadium of Roman citizens and waves his hand at them and says, away with the atheists. Then the proconsul urged him, saying, Swear, and I will set you free. Reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years have I served him. He never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So even as the Romans viewed the Christians as atheists, they were meant to see the realities. They're, they're the atheists. They're the godless ones. They're the God deniers. So that is our state as Gentiles. If something didn't change, if, something didn't, if there wasn't a but now, that's where we'd all be stuck. Without Christ, without a people, without covenants and promises, without hope. Very, very, very quickly we'll crack verse 13 because we don't want to just leave it with bad news. And we get this wonderful but now in Christ you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So very quickly, just want to point out again, where does this blessing come from? In Christ. Because he's already said in 1-3, chapter 1-3, every spiritual blessing is in Christ. This good thing, this fix to the problem, is found in Christ. Not found in something we did, or we came up with. This resolution to our critical Gentile problem is found in Christ. What is the solution? He's going to summarize it here. And then next week, we're going to look at him go into detail. But here's the summary. We were far off, and I think that's one nice way of saying all of point C, one through five. We were without Christ, without a people, without covenants and promises, without hope, without God. We were far off. And in him, and in his blood, we've been brought near. He'll go on in greater detail in the rest of this conscious tells how exactly that happened. But the good news of the gospel is that on the cross, Christ not only reconciled you with God, but he made it possible for us to be reconciled with each other. That's the wonderful good news. 
Not only does he reconcile us to, his, to the Father, but to each other. And we who are far off have been brought near. How? In or by the blood of Christ. In his death. I'm just jumping ahead to what we're going to look at next week. But just quickly, look at verses 14 through 18. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. See, the solution isn't you and I become Israel. It's that you and I and Israel together become something other. The church. Takes the two and makes something new, uniting us. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. And we're going to look at how God did this next week. But just understand, you're in my plight as Gentiles was far worse than we ever thought or imagined. We take for granted our ability to come near. We take for granted the covenants of promise. We take for granted that in the church we have a people. We take for granted that we have a hope and we have a God. Such was not the case for Gentiles in the past. Their only hope was to join with Israel, to partner with Israel, to enter into Israel. And we, we have been made one in Christ. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Lord God, what lavish grace. We were farther from you and farther off than we can ever imagine in far worse of a plight than we ever could think. But you saw our dilemma clearly, and you acted decisively. You took the initiative. You came and sought us. You redeemed us. You sent your son to die on the cross on our behalf. So, Lord, I pray that you'd give us a greater and greater appreciation of what you have saved us from and what you have saved us to. And appreciate the peace you have made for us and each other. In the coming weeks, we might better understand and live out that peace. We praise you that by the death of your son, in his blood, you have removed and erased these problems and made us one and brought us near and reconciled us to your father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.